Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is Melina Lee Williams Haas. I deeply appreciate you listening and taking the time to hang out with me. I will be addressing issues of life, the universe, and everything that are often bogged down and mired in shame and grief, and talk about how they can be repackaged to be useful and gorgeous and fucking awesome for you. So sit back and relax, or you know what? Sit up and freak out. However, you prefer to listen. Let's go. The last time I actually saw my father face to face was right after the disaster of September 11th. And it was a sort of time where all bets were off. Everything that had happened in the past was sort of briefly forgotten, right? Everyone sort of just wanted to really reconnect with everyone in family and friends and people were making all kinds of phone calls. I heard from people I had not heard from in many, many years. And at the time I was actually performing in my solo show, 69 Stories, One Pervert's Tale. And the day after the the disaster, I had off. I was not performing. And then I had to sort of decide what the fuck I was going to do. It seemed really trite and petty at first to get on stage and perform a show after such an incredible disaster. But then I realized actually people were calling the theater and saying, is the show still coming up? I actually really want to go and, and see theater, see live performance and sort of reinforce that life was still happening. So I did finish the run of that show and immediately thereafter flew back home. And one of the things that was heavy on my mind was getting back together with my father, actually, from whom I had been estranged for many years. And my mom and my two younger sisters were still living in the same place. I think they were still living together. And my sister, I believe, still had contact information from my father. So we arranged to have him come over and and visit while I was in town. Keeping in mind that the last time I had seen my father was when my then boyfriend Jack and I were leaving New York to move to Los Angeles. And I kind of thought it was sort of important to have that bit of closure and to say goodbye. Keeping in mind also that my father at that point had undergone yet another transformation and was a Muslim, but not your standard issue kind of regular Muslim. He was very extreme in his beliefs very conservative, very like Salman Rushdie must die kind of Muslim. And so I warned my boyfriend who was not black and definitely not a Muslim that my dad's reaction might not be awesome to him and I being together, but it'd be okay. We just needed to just say goodbye. And so we met, my father was at the time living in an SRO on 11th street, right near Vineros. For those who don't know, those are single room occupancy hotels there for people who don't necessarily have the means or wherewithal to pay rent on a monthly basis. And that's where he was at that point in his life. So we met him there and he was polite and, well, I wish you luck in your life, except, and then he paused for a moment and said, I can't really give you my blessing since you are living in sin with a white devil. And 
I nodded and, and said, okay, well, thanks, dad. And then Jack and I took our leave and went around the corner and sat on a stoop laughing our asses off until we cried. I was just like, that was amazing. And Jack was just delighted to have been called a white devil because you don't get that every day. So since then, my contact with him has been zero. Occasionally, I would wonder if he were alive or dead, just from the pure standpoint of curiosity. But family is complicated, right? And so that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about family. I want to talk about specifically about my dad, my relationship with him, especially coming up as we are on what is commonly considered a family holiday or family holiday season, which is Thanksgiving. Asterisk, I do not celebrate Thanksgiving. It is a bullshit holiday rife with forgetfulness about the indigenous peoples that were slaughtered as a result of the colonization. But many people do still celebrate and subject themselves to all sorts of pain and torture and suffering in the name of family. And then, of course, we have uh, the Christmas holidays in America. We have Hanukkah. We have Diwali. There's um, so many holidays coming up at the end of the year. And so often you see people start to freak out and panic about how to deal with their family during these times. So I want to chat a little bit about that today on All That and Mo. If you're someone who is curious about kink and BDSM but has no doggone idea where to start, I got you. First off, I'm the co-author of a book called Playing Well with Others, The Guide to Exploring, Navigating, and Discovering the Kink, Leather, and BDSM Relationships. You can find that on Amazon and I'll put a link in the description. But let's say you want a more personal one-on-one interaction. I got you, fam. Go to thekinkdoula.com. It's T-H-E-K-I-N-K-D-O-U-L-A. You may be familiar with the concept of doulas from childbirth, but what about rebirthing yourself? What about going deep within and uncovering the secrets and wondrous discoveries that maybe, just maybe, have been hiding from you or you've been hiding from yourself for a long time? You want to talk about your secret fetish, your kink, Perhaps just you're curious about how to expand your mind a little bit more into becoming the person you truly want to be. Contact me at thekinkdoula.com and let's see who you can become. On today's episode, I have the lovely and talented Garrett Friedrich Haas, international composer of Myth and Mystery. Hello, Professor. Hi. Okay to hear you. (laughs) You can also see me because you're sitting right there. This is even more lovely. Yeah, it is. So one of the things, well, speaking of family, uh, the professor comes from a family with a complicated and often pretty ugly history. And so we have both had our struggles with family issues and the emotional attachment to people who maybe are troubling in their reality and all of that. Can you tell for me, Georg, one of the first things that I remember you quoting to me was this hilarious, is it an Austrian? It's an Austrian poet. It's Heimito von Doderer. And he is a really amazing chronist of the late Austrian Empire. And chronist? The, Do you mean chronicler? Chronicler. Okay, yes. Great chronicler of the late Austrian Empire and the early Austrian democracy. And he said a wonderful sentence. It's so beautiful. Also in the melody, the speech melody, I have to say it in German first and then I will translate it. Wer sich in Familie begibt, kommt darin um. Translation? 
If you move yourself into family, you will perish in it. <laughs> Which is so fucking Austrian. Do you guys have any cheerful aphorisms or is everything just like bleak and depressing as that? It's not depressive. It's just true. <laughs> <laughs> And it's so interesting to me because family as a unit, as a concept, is something that's universal, but it's all so very different. In many cultures, the veneration of elders, the idea of multi-generational living is so vital and so important. And then you look at America where seniors are often sort of shuttled away or put in their own places basically to age and die. Whereas in the past and still in many cultures, you'll have two, three, four generations living all together until they all come together and perish. Right. Yeah, well, I don't agree that it is 100% terrible because you can find amazing constructions. I lived together for a long time with my grandmother. And in one, one moment, yes, she was still a Nazi. But on the other side, she was the person who taught me tolerance for gay people. She was the person who made it possible that I could study music because my parents would not allow me to do this. Mm, mm. And she gave me in her talks a very detailed picture of the living of society at the end of the 19th century. And I'm extremely happy to have learned this. And I believe one of the important things in these old multi-generation communications, communities, multi-generation communities, mm -hmm. is that the experiences and the knowledge mm -hmm. of the elder continued, are given, and our situation today is it is just not possible. Well, I think there's also the idea that older knowledge is not as critical as new knowledge and technology. There's all these jokes about old folks not being able to program cell phones or whatever it was. Or back in my generation, it was who could program the VCR. And now it's who can program the smart home. And I'm sure in the next generation, it'll be something else. But I, I do agree that there is something that is lost when you don't have access to those folks who have survived times that are different than ours. And there's always stuff that you can pull forward and take with you that's going to be critical. Yeah, and I believe also, because now I am an old person myself, I believe it is necessary that I tell my experiences and my knowledges. When I watch how the right wing is developing, and I remember the stories of my grandmother, who uh, was trapped into these ideologies. And as I watch now people trapped in approximately the same way as it happened to my grandmother. Then I think I should share this experience. I should speak about it. And when I think on your father, then, darling, there's a huge difference between the terribleness of your family and the terribleness of my family. Because your father is a victim. Well, he's a victim of the government, right? Because yeah. he was drafted into a shit war. I, should, I, would, I would not even start with that. I would start with the fact that he is survivor of generations of slavery, which is... Well, uh, yeah, that which, too. Which, which, <laughs> yeah, which, which is an incredible trauma. Later, he was confronted with this terrible Vietnam War, where he was abused. And because he was, he was black, he did not get the support which he should get as a veteran. 
things. And of course, I, I know there's a person who maybe has heard about me, who sees me as a white devil. But it's a difference if your father is, sees me as a white devil or if my mother has been so unhappy because I have a black girlfriend. These are two different situations. Well, fundamentally. they're fundamentally different because of the power imbalance, correct? Yes. There's an intrinsic power imbalance when it comes to a person of African descent versus a person of European descent in the United States. What power they have, what they can and cannot do. That's definitely, definitely true. And so I definitely want to respect that. One of the things that I have to acknowledge is that he transformed himself so many times over the course of my lifetime, just observing him. When I was born, when I was very young, he was still a hippie musician, he, a saxophone player. He really played any wind instrument. I saw him play the saxophone, the flute, the trumpet, trombone, everything. But he mostly focused on the saxophone and then focused on making me play the saxophone, which like many kids who were made to practice an instrument that they didn't really love intrinsically, it was not my favorite thing. But he was definitely a musician and an artist, and that motivated him and drove him. When I was probably about four or five, he became a really hardcore right-wing, super conservative Christian, which was sort of jarring to me because I really enjoyed the lighter and more fun dad than I had versus the dad that was picking up the Bible and lecturing us for hours every Sunday night, hours and hours of Bible study, which I did not love. And this was on top of going to church, starting at maybe 6 a.m., because he decided that he needed to go back to church at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, which is where he had originally been stationed, because back in the Vietnam War, the Brooklyn Navy Yard was active. And so we would get on the train and go from Harlem all the way out to the Brooklyn Navy Yard for 8 a.m. church service. And it would sometimes just be me, my mom, my dad, and the chaplain, because no one else would show up there, because who was going to church? at the Brooklyn Navy Yard in the early 70s. Nobody. That transformation stuck for a while until I was a teenager and then he converted to radical Islam. And what was interesting for me is that he was essentially the same. I did not see or notice any huge fundamental shift in who he was, but his belief system shifted so much that it just rippled out and impacted everything else in his life. He went from being my dad to being someone who no joke, was trying to get me to marry a Muslim friend of our family so that he could stay in the United States. Keep in mind, I was 15 at the time when he and Muhammad came by the house with gift offerings to give to me to as like a dowry, right? Can you imagine? <laughs> so are you... Are you I'm just quiet. What, what shall I say? To I don't know. So are you... Are you I'm just <laughs> quiet. What, what, sh what shall I say? To I don't know. Something. Something. You're you invited. <laughs> <laughs> Usually you won't stop talking and now you're just like all contemplative like, ah, oh, yes. Yeah. This is definitely horrible and it's causes abuse in all the levels. But I still would ask you to see the positive thing which your father gave you when your father was one of the very few Afro-American persons who traveled to Europe in the 
70s and 80s. Yeah, we certainly were unusual. And your father also made you an artist supported you becoming this artist which you are and of course your art is different as the art of your father but i believe he gave you this open-mindedness by these travels and he also gave you this fundamental connection to art which helped him to survive. Mm. And this is something which, which connects you and me, because for, you, for us both, art is not something beautiful which we add to our existence, because it's so great and amazing. Right. Art is something which we definitely need for our lives. And this was the work of your father. Yeah, I will, I will say it took me years, decades, to accept and understand the gift that my father gave to me specifically, he was very dedicated to traveling and taking us all around the world. And when I was very young, he would work at least a minimum of two full-time jobs and as well after work or between shifts, go and take his saxophone out into the street to Times Square to the subway station or, or down to Bryant Park and play his saxophone in the street. He actually created this whole one-man band, like, foot percussion rig that would play, like, a cymbal and a tambourine and a drum with his feet while he was playing the saxophone. And all this money he hoarded and saved and hoarded until he had enough money to take us. The first trip was uh, three months traveling in Morocco and North Africa, which was something that nobody was doing at the time, really, especially not African-American people. Black, you just didn't see black people traveling overseas as much as you do now. What was remarkable about that was that there was also a war going on in the Sahara. And I had to fact check this with my mom. I remember at one point saying, I remember I had this memory, probably it was wrong, that we were stopped by soldiers with guns. And my mom said, oh, yes, well, we kept driving into the war zones and they kept turning us around and saying, you can't go through here. And I'm thinking, who the hell takes their wife, child and brand new baby to North Africa in the middle of the sub-Saharan war? Whatever fucking war it was, I can't remember. My history is too terrible. But there was a war. And it was not necessarily safe for us to be there. Yes, this, this war is still uh, uh, going on more or less no, uh, this, uh, because Morocco wanted to annex the former Spanish colony of Western Sahara. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think now there, yes, there are still pockets of resistance and people yeah. that are not accepting the, the government. And so into this is where my dad took us for our first trip. And it was three months traveling. I'll never forget coming back to school, beginning of second grade and people talking about how they went to summer camp or they went to their country house in the Hamptons, and I stood up with my little mini tagine and my little gold shoes and my caftan and talked about how we were rescued in the desert by Bedouins after my dad almost drove a car off a cliff. And these kids being like, how could you afford to go to Morocco? Your family is poor. Because, you know, kids are trash and have no filter. And I explained, well, my dad just worked really hard to take us there. And my mom was not of the opinion that this was a worthwhile investment. She wanted us to move out of the hood and to get a nice house somewhere and to not be living in the projects. But I will say in retrospect, there is nothing that is more critical to who I am today than the fact that I had the perspective of the difference between what it meant to be a poor American child what it meant to be a poor African child, what it meant to be a black person in 
in white Europe and all of these things that I saw before the age of 12. He wound up taking us to Morocco three times. And to one trip, we went to all the Western European capitals over three months, driving and taking trains and having these amazing experiences that impacted so profoundly who I am as a person. I won't say it erases the other emotional abuse, but it certainly does give balance to who I am as a person and provides that perspective. And that's one of the reasons that I always had this sort of curiosity about getting back in touch with him. Frankly, I would love to get in touch with him too, but I know this he will not accept me. Let me say one very uh, egocentric sentence. Just one. <laughs> normally, normally I'm never egocentric, but in this case, <laughs> I, I would be happy if the problems you have with your fathers would be the only problems which my parents had. There's no blood on the hands of your father. No, well, that's because he never actually ran into Salman Rushdie to kill him because of the fatwa against him. Had he done so, then there might have been. Okay. <laughs> Once more, I cannot discuss with you. You always win. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I will take the hit on the theoretical blood versus the yeah. actual situation with your family, which for those who might not know, Gerd Friedrich is the descendant of how many generations? Two generations? Uh, of? Two generations of uh, real Nazis and, and proto-Nazis, uh, and, and, and uh, one generation in addition. Yeah. Um, so they were not the good guys, and they were the folks that my grandfather was fighting against. Mm-hmm. My dad's father was in the, I think actually both my grandfathers, I think that both my mom and my father's fathers fought in the wars. Because, of course, being black men and being expendable, they're drafted real fast. And then, of course, given very little assistance when they come back, as you have pointed out before. But what's remarkable is that the harm that's done to people in families where hatred is taught is so profound. And being in a relationship with you has really given me a great deal more compassion for people who were raised in that hate. There's so many people who are just raised in hateful environments who come up. If your parents are Trump fans and waving around their Make America Great Again hats, how much chance do you really have to be a balanced and loving human being? Your family can really be the launching point for you to just sink further into ugliness. Well, I think the biggest problem for everybody is to do this step and to see the dark sides of their parents in reality. Yes. I think for for decades I tried to live a kind of a double life with my parents. That here's my ideology, here's my believing system, and here are my parents, and I still love my parents, and I... As a psychologist said to me, you have a bouquet of flowers and some of these flowers are poisoned and some of these are beautiful and just put away the the poisoned flowers and everything is fine. Mm. Until I learned this is not possible. When you grew up in a world of hate and in a world where you have learned that you are a part of the Herren Menschen, of the better people, uh, you have to change this fundamentally. And if you do it... The price which you gain is very high. You will be more happy. And when I compare my life and my situation with some of these right-wing guys in Mm. my same age, there's nobody whose personal situation is beautiful. I really want to 
lift up that idea of the unhappiness of people yes. who are oppressive and hateful. And I think that this is something that we ignore. And for those of us who are either the targets of hate, or for those of us who are coming up in families where hate is taught to remember the unhappiness yeah. and the tragedy of that hatred. And it doesn't forgive someone who is racist. But I will tell you, when I have experienced racism after coming to an understanding of the humanity and the tragedy and the ugliness of what those people have been taught, what it enables me to do is just take a step back, not take it personally, and to just sort of send like some positive energy their way and say, I hope that you get past this because it's killing you. Just imagine, would anybody of you would love to be in the skin of Hitler? He was a monster, but he was a monster which I don't believe that he was happy. One step less terrible, but still ugly. Does anybody of you want to be in the skin of ex-president Trump? Ah, we don't say his name. Oh, sorry. I was, I, 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 hair de mort. Uh, okay, good. <laughs> he, who, he, who. he whose hair shall not be named. Okay. Uh, <laughs> his fundamental unhappiness... It's so clear. It's so clear. It's so open. And I don't know the American right-wing politicians, but I know the Austrian ones. Yeah, the, look at any of the right-wing politicians. Yeah, they are all... They are all it's just a grimness and a sadness yeah. and an anger. And compare this, for example, with the light of Barack Obama. Yeah. Or even Jimmy Carter. I believe sometimes they don't, these people don't need to go to hell. They have the hell here mm -hmm. while they're doing the terrible thing. Yes. And I want to repeat, my father who beat me, who tried to break my self-esteem in all ways which were possible, he was deeply unhappy. Yes. Yeah. And I believe your father is not as unhappy. He's a bit nutty, but <laughs> I don't think that I don't think that unhappiness is part of his core. No, no. Do you know what I mean? Like he's someone who is always pushed through, eternally optimistic, even in the face of of incredible odds and failure after failure. He managed to pull off some incredible stunts. The way he took us on all these travels is amazing. And the fact that he had survived for so many years with definitely impacts of PTSD from his experience in the Vietnam War. He was in the Navy and was serving on the USS Forrestal, which those of you who are familiar with history are going to be like, holy shit. And those of you who are not are going to be like, what? The USS Forrestal was the site of a fire in 1967, I believe, that is to this date one of the worst disasters in naval history. So tragic and so fucked up the way that they handled it. Actually, films from the Forrestal fire are still used in Navy training videos to show what not to do in the case of a fire on board of, a, of an aircraft carrier. And he survived this and yet went on to have a family and have a job and take us traveling and do all of these things that while on balance I might look back and say, oh gosh, crazy dad, one of the reasons I still had this curiosity about finding him after losing contact with him post 9-11, was really to actually say thank you to him for everything that he managed to do. And over the course of the past 20 years or so, every once in a while I would say, gosh, I wonder where he is, and I would try to find him. 
internet searches and everything else. But his name is so common that if you, if I tried to find James Williams's, it was like, here's 75,000 of them in Manhattan, right? Like it was just impossible. But a few months ago I was on social media and I, I posted just a brief sort of gosh, I have no idea where my dad is, if he's still alive kind of thing. And someone who works as a private investigator offered their services to try to find him. And it was not easy. And they took weeks of going back and forth and finally dug up a thread and sent some information to me. And I said, yes, this is definitely one of his old addresses. And long story short, she managed to track him down and have a list of numbers that were almost definitely one of them, two of them had to be his former addresses. And at that point I was sort of like, okay, what do I do now? Do I just start cold calling all these numbers? But my youngest sister, who is more adventurous than I am, decided she was going to grab it and run. So I sent her off those lists of numbers and she came back a few hours later and said, I found him and I spoke to him which was kind of amazing to me. And I was like, wow, so he's alive. So we know that much. He's alive and living his life and has a house and and property and seems to be doing okay. As far as that goes now, he's also not someone who I think I can spend any time with. From what she relayed to me, all of his prejudices and all of those issues that he had when I was growing up are still present and laid on top of that. Well, let me just say that he was happy to hear that members of my family had still not been vaccinated because that meant that then he would not be exposed to the toxins that are leaking from vaccinated people and the tracking devices that are apparently in place in the vaccines. And that really cut me to the core because part of me thought, okay, wow, so that's how that is. And it's a little bit fucked up because I don't want someone who is delusional and and paranoid in my life, really. But by the same token, I do still want to have some sort of connection with him. So my solution at that point was that I was going to, I'm going to write a letter. And the two things I want to say to him, first of all, are thank you for the gift of travel and experience and exposure to the world that he gave to me. And also that I offer him my forgiveness for the many, (laughs) the many trials, tribulations, and wrongs that I think most parents inflict upon their kids, right? Parents are human beings. So that's where I sort of came to it with. And it was interesting because I've started to see on social media, people relaying there like, oh, it's Thanksgiving. What am I going to do with racist uncle or disrespecting my pronouns mom or all these things? And I over and over again say to myself, why do people put themselves in situations where toxic humans are in their lives purely for the reason of birth or family connection? I just, I can't do that. I don't know if that makes me a sociopathic monster. Well, in this case, sorry, you are married to a sociopathic monster because mm. I stopped meeting my parents when I understood this is just better for me. Well, hold on. You were the survivor of serial, ongoing, horrific abuse. Okay, so yes, I don't no. think anyone 
would say that you would need to stay in contact with your abuser in that way. Well, my psychologist said it. Also, forget it. What psychologist? Those Austrian psychologists. All right, okay. See, this is the problem right here. Okay. God damn it. Yeah. And y'all kind of like invented psychology, to, the talk therapy too. Wasn't that an Austrian conceit originally? It was Sigmund Freud, but the Sigmund Freud was broken. Mm. He, was, he was Jewish and as a very old man, he had to escape to survive, and his sisters were murdered in the concentration camp. Let me allow to speak something religious. The fifth or fourth commandment says, as I remember it from my German religious, being taught in religion in German, is you have to honor father and mother to get a life for yourself when you are old. I think this is a very interesting thing. It's one of the very few commitments which make a connection. Because if it says if they don't kill somebody because, because it's better for you if you don't kill somebody. But honor your parents because this is better for you as a person. I don't think it says, doesn't it just say honor thy father and mother? Also the German version, sorry, is, du sollst Vater und Mutter ehren, auf das es dir wohlergehe und du lange lebest auf Erden. You have honor, I mean, the next sentence is, and therefore you will have a good life and you will live longly on earth. Oh. Yeah? And I think this is, this is a very interesting thing, mm -hmm. because it's, it connects worshipping of the parents with our own necessity to emotionally survive. Of course, I feel bad that I did not have the contact to my parents. I have many moments where I think on them. When I see my father standing here looking at me, when I see my mother. But on the other side, I know it made my life better. It made the life of my, at least of my youngest child, better. It made the life of my wife and me better. And it makes the world better if I cut this terrible connection. Mm. And it's my job to live with this pain. It will be my job when I'm dead and if there is something after this, but maybe I will meet them again. Maybe I meet this part of them which is holy which was hidden during a long time. Maybe everything will completely be different and we have no idea of how it will be. But what I definitely know is that my decision to cut was one of my most important and best decisions in my life. Thank you, Professor. I think that's the perfect place to wrap this up, especially when we look at the idea that we are compelled to be with family and to sacrifice our own mental, emotional, spiritual, possibly even physical well-being because of this idea that honoring our father and mother is the supreme act of obedience and gratefulness as a child. Because honoring yourself is at the very least equally as important. I would say more important, but then I'm a bitch. I'm happy that you are a bitch, darling. <laughs> You've been listening to All That and Mo, 
Thanks so much for spending your precious, precious time with me today. My podcast is produced by Cody Crabb, theme music by Georg Friedrich Haas, as performed by Marcus Weiss. And I look forward to spending time with you again really soon. Mm-hmm.